You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 25. We entered back into um, chapter 25 last week um, and really began to get into the story of Isaac and his offspring, Jacob and Esau. And um, so we're going to pick up there. So last week we were introducing Jacob and Esau. We were looking at their birth and the anticipation of their birth. And we started off looking at how uh, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, basically experiences something very similar as to what um, Sarah, her mother-in-law, experienced, and that's a barren womb. And we see that Isaac is this promised son, and everything surrounding the marriage of Isaac and Rebecca is this idea that Rebecca is going to come and be a part of what God is doing. She's going to marry Isaac and produce offspring that will fulfill God's promises to Abraham, offspring that, that number the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. And they get married, and immediately, I'm sure, they try to have kids because Isaac is 40 years old, and they find out they can't have kids because kids aren't coming. And for 20 years, there's no children. And we said that Isaac prayed for her barren womb. And I told you last week that that I believe that Isaac prayed for the bulk of those 20 years for his wife to have a child. Because I think, one, he would have been very sensitive to the idea of a barren womb because Abraham, his father, would have told him how long they had to wait for Sarah to have a child. And so I think immediately they would have picked up on the fact that they're not having kids. And I think Isaac would have entered into a time of prayer, would have prayed persistently uh, for this womb to be open. And so we talked last week, just the encouragement that that is to us, that oftentimes we are very quick to pray for something temporarily. We don't hear from God. We don't get an answer that we want. And then we kind of move along and, and delete that from our prayer request list and, and begin to pray for other things. And so I challenged you last week that we shouldn't be scared or, or, or uh, fearful of, of continuing to pray for something that we're not hearing back from God about, that Isaac sets a great example for us. He prays for 20 years uh, probably for his wife to have a child. And I told you what's even more significant maybe is that he's praying for something that has to happen, right? This isn't just a wishful thinking, I would love to have a child, right? It's not Isaac and, and his wife and then praying for something that they don't know if it's going to happen or not. This is something that was already promised. This has to happen. For God to be who he is, for God to be faithful, it has to happen. And so another level of encouragement there that we ought to pray for things that God has promised to do because that gives us uh, an even greater assurance that God will answer, that God will move, that God will act. And so we saw last week, Isaac, Rebecca are married. They can't have children. They're prayerful. God gives her children. But there's trouble in the pregnancy and God answers Rebecca's prayer because she comes to God wanting to know what is happening inside of me. Why do I feel this turmoil? And God describes to her that she's having twins, twins that are at odds with each other, twins that will continue to be at odds with each other after birth. Um, and the prophecy here is that God is choosing to to bestow grace upon one son, uh, to give the blessing and the birthright and the inheritance and the specific acts of grace that will continue through Jacob and not through Esau, the elder son. And so there's a communication before they're ever born that Jacob is going to be the chosen son of God that will carry forth the promises that have been given to Abraham. And so we talked a little bit last week about... Um, God choosing recipients of his grace and that God has the right to do what he wants. That ultimately God chooses Jacob and it removes any boasting that Jacob could have about God choosing him. 
We said the summary sentence from last week, the predetermined destinies of Jacob and Esau are difficult to accept because they imply that God's grace does not bow to human reasoning or ideas of fairness. Removing the external factors of character and works as the determining reasons for God's grace and instead revealing his sovereign choice as the fuel of his grace, which eliminates all grounds of boasting. Romans 9 is very specific, brings this story to us in the New Testament, says that God chooses Jacob, chooses to bestow grace upon him, not because Jacob earns it, not because Jacob deserves it, but simply because God is gracious to Jacob. If there was anything inherently good about Jacob, God would owe Jacob. He would owe him the way that he works in his life. Instead, God is very gracious to work in his life the way that he does. So that brings us to the the rest of this story here in chapter 25. So we're going to pick up reading in verse 27. It says, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The title of our sermon today is that Esau chooses the wild over the divine. Last week's sermon topic, our sermon title was God chooses Jacob over Esau. So last week we saw God doing some choosing. This week we see Esau doing some choosing. He is a man of the wild and we're going to see how that leads to him being a man that rejects the divine, rejects the things that God has given to him. The summary sentence for this week, this is where we're going with today's sermon. Any present enjoyment that we can experience here on this earth pales in comparison to what is coming for the believer, reminding us that sin cannot offer a moment of pleasure today that is worth forfeiting the lasting eternal joy found only in Christ. Romans 8, 18 talks about nothing compares uh, to what we're going to see in the future. So we, we, we live in light of our sufferings, right? It says that our sufferings, what we experience right now, does not compare, doesn't, doesn't give greater context to what we're going to see in the future, right? And so we, we endure sufferings now because we know something greater is to come. But I think the flip side is also true, and I think we see that from this passage, that immediate gratification, immediate gratification for the here and now does not justify forfeiting forfeiting what is to come because what is to come in the future is far greater than anything that's offered to us right here in the now. That's the lesson that we're going to see here from Esau's life is that he forfeits something far greater, the birthright, the inheritance, the the opportunity to lead his family and to enjoy all the spiritual blessings that are going to come from that. He forfeits all of that for what he perceives to be an immediate need that has to be satisfied right now. And so he, 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 he abandons all foresight. He abandons all ability to think about the future. He only focuses on the here and now. And he forfeits something that is of far greater value for something that passes very, very quickly. 
So that's our summary sentence for today. Any present enjoyment pales in comparison to what's coming, reminding us that sin cannot offer a moment of pleasure today that is worth forfeiting the lasting eternal joy found only in Christ. Some introductory thoughts that I want to share with you. I told you in our discussion groups this morning that um, I wanted us to discuss why is this story even here? Um, It's not necessary, I don't think, for the narrative because God tells us in the verses previous to this that he has chosen Jacob to be the inheritor of the birthright. And then we're going to find in two chapters that Jacob deceives his dad and gets the birthright. So really, this story could be taken out and we wouldn't miss a beat as far as what is happening in this story. But I'm going to share with you why I think God includes this for our, um, our knowledge and for our understanding of his plan. So some introductory thoughts here first. This story is used by God for two important teaching points in Romans 9 and Hebrews 12. Okay, we saw last week. So I'm talking about the story here at the end of 25. So last week we saw the first part. God uses the um, the prayer for the birth of these two twins. He uses the choosing the prophecy choice of Jacob over Esau to teach us about how he bestows grace upon man in Romans chapter 9. So Romans chapter 9, the points being made in Romans chapter 9, the points that we made last week in last week's sermon, flow from the first part of this story, that God chose Jacob over Esau for reasons that we don't understand. Okay? It's a big teaching point for Romans chapter 9. But what we read in our discussion groups today, Hebrews chapter 12, the author of that book draws upon this story for another teaching point. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, after he sells his birthright, When he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. First teaching point from last week, Romans chapter 9. God chooses freely those who will receive his grace to eliminate the opportunity to boast. Okay, so God's all about saving man. He's all about rescuing man. Man chooses to sin in the garden. Adam and Eve abandon him. They don't trust him. They believe Satan. They believe their immediate wants and needs. They want this tree. They think it's better than anything God promises. All right? God wants to rescue mankind back to him. But he does not give grace to people that earn it. Because by that point, it is no longer grace. It's God owes. God owes man for achieving good works. Instead, everything we see in scripture, specifically in the book of Ephesians, is that God saves man in such a way that man cannot boast. Okay, so we saw last week God chooses Jacob. We highlighted some of the negative points of Jacob's life. This guy's not a great guy, all right, especially early in his life, but God chooses him freely to eliminate opportunity to boast. But the point for this week from Hebrews chapter 12, God holds man accountable for failing to receive his grace. Esau's decision forfeited his blessing. So I told you, last week's sermon title is God choosing Jacob over Esau. This week, we see Esau choosing other things over God. So anytime we see 
uh, God's foreknowledge, God's election, God's choosing in Scripture, it never eliminates man's responsibility. It never gives man an out. It never lets man off the hook, right? Man never gets to come to God and say, you can't hold me accountable. You made me this way, right? That, that comes out of Romans chapter 9 as well. So while we see this, this side of the coin where God is choosing and God is in control and God is active and God is doing things, the flip side of it is that God holds man accountable for the choices that he makes. And I think this story is included here, right? We could take it out. We could take it out and we could see God choose Jacob. And then we could see Jacob do some deception and steal it from Esau. And then we walk away and we say, well, poor Esau, God created him this way, right? God created him in such a way where he would never inherit the blessing. But what we have out of this story is Esau's responsibility for his destiny. We have Esau's responsibility for the choices that he makes and what ultimately leads his people group, the, the Edomites, away from God's Israel. All right. And so point number two, God holds man accountable for failing to receive his grace. Esau's decision forfeited his blessing. Now, going off that passage there in Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about him. Um, it talks about him seeking repentance. He found no chance to repent, even though he sought it with tears. He desired to inherit the blessing. What does that mean? And we'll talk more about this when we get into the actual time where Jacob deceives because the only time we have recorded in scripture where Esau is shedding tears is when Jacob deceives his dad. Okay, so jumping ahead, we'll see Esau show up after Jacob's already dressed up like a hairy man and gotten the blessing. Esau comes in and wants the blessing. And, and Isaac says, buddy, I already blessed somebody. I thought it was you. And, 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 they, and they both figure it out together. And it says that, that Esau's weeping over the fact that he's missed his opportunity. And so I believe what's happening here is that he made a choice early in life, and now he's experiencing the consequences. And these are tears over the consequences, over the fact that he's made a choice, and now he's reaping what he's sown, and he can't fix it now. Right? And we're going to talk, and we're going to talk later. There are some choices that we make that we will bear the consequences, and we will experience the consequences, and we can't, we can't go back on the consequences. That there are some choices that are so big and so influential for our life that we can weep and cry. And, and it's not saying I don't believe that he couldn't experience any type of repentance. It's the fact that at this point he wants the birthright, one that he forfeited earlier in life. He wants it now and no amount of tears can fix it. Unless there be any question as to whether or not Esau is having a come to Jesus moment and wanting to get his life right. We will see in that story that when he realizes he's lost it, he's weeping with dad. And when the tears dry up, his first response is, I'm going to kill my brother, right? It's not, wow, I'm responsible for this. Let me, let me offer sacrifices. Let me repent before God. Where's the altar that I need to build? It's where is my brother and what am I going to use to kill him? So we don't have to question here and say, wow, there's, there's times when somebody really wants to come to God and repent. And, and God says, no. This isn't genuine repentance theory. This is, this is Esau being sorrowful over the consequences of a poor choice that he made earlier in life. God's letting it play out now. He's weeping because he realizes what a poor choice I made. But now I want to go kill my brother. So it's not genuine repentance like we talk about for a believer. All right. But God, I think, brings us this story so we can see that he is holding Esau accountable, not for a choice that he made in times past, but for choices that Esau makes 
in his life. All right? Another introductory thought here. The story focuses on the privileges tied to the birthright. Just to give you a little bit of background about birthrights, this brought responsibility and obligations with rights and privileges. So there was the beneficial part of the birthright. I get two times the inheritance as any of my brothers. That was the big benefit. Two times the inheritance. But you came with the responsibilities of having to be the head of the family, the spiritual leader of the family. There was a lot of responsibility. There was a lot of maturity that was needed. So obligations, I've got to take control of the family when dad is gone. Benefits, I get, ha- I get double of what everybody else gets that's a, dad, that's a son of dad. So great benefits, but great responsibilities. All right. Um, we also know from scripture, first Chronicles five gives us an example. This normally went to the oldest son, the birthright, the inheritance. It normally went to the oldest son, but it could be transferred to a different son. If the older son made bad choices, first Chronicles chapter five documents and reminds us that Reuben, Jacob's son forfeits the birthright because he has relations with one of his dad's, um, concubines. So this gross sexual impurity plays out. Reuben forfeits it, and so it's given to one of Jacob's other sons. Okay, so while it normally went to the oldest son, it could be forfeited based on poor choices by the older son. And we see that that's ultimately what happens for Esau. He makes a poor choice, forfeits his birthright. Number three, this is a familiar story to us, but I think this whole scenario is most likely set up Because Isaac failed to transfer the birthright according to God's plan from the very beginning. Think about it for a second. This whole story and this whole conflict is perhaps due to the fact that he remembers himself and Ishmael and the conflict that existed between Isaac and Ishmael. And so Isaac's now grown up and he's saying, okay, I've got two sons. My dad, Abraham, had two sons. This drove a wedge between us and and Abraham had to get rid of Ishmael because Ishmael wanted to to abuse me when I was younger. And so I think he's operating from that. And then I think also you've got what plays out in here is that he seemingly fails to choose the blessed son over the beloved son. Remember, Abraham says, God, I love Ishmael. Let's just make Ishmael the chosen one. You don't have to give me any other sons. I'm completely content with Ishmael, right? Remember remember when he came to God and said, let's make Ishmael the, the promised one. Let's let Ishmael be the one that inherits everything. And says, God says, no, I'm giving you a child with, with Sarah. And you're going to have to make Ishmael go away because this is a product of your sin. And, and you love him, I know, but you're going to have to bear the consequences that the two boys can't coexist. And I'm sitting here studying and I'm thinking about this whole scenario and I'm thinking, Why is there even a discussion about Esau selling a birthright that God told Isaac and Rebekah before they were ever born rightfully belongs to Jacob, right? Isaac, as he's growing, as he's raising his two sons, should have had a sit down conversation that said, boys, normally this would go to Esau. And for reasons I don't understand, it's going to go to Jacob. And that's just how it's going to be. And y'all need to understand this from an early age. I don't want it to drive a wedge between y'all. I want you to love each other. This is God's purpose. This is God's plan. But what do we see in the passage? It says that Isaac loved Esau, right? He loves the food that Esau cooks. He's got these superficial reasons, I think, for loving his son. But his affection and his intimacy is driven to Esau to the point that Isaac's about to die. And he's saying, Esau, let me give you the blessing. 
This is completely contrary to what God revealed before they were ever born. And so I think part of the responsibility falls here on Isaac because I think Isaac does a poor job of communicating from birth as they grow up, hey, this isn't his to sell. This isn't his to forfeit. This belongs to Jacob. But we don't see any communication like that. I think this scenario plays out maybe because Isaac does a poor job of communicating this and training his sons to see God's plan in this light. All right, let's jump into the text. We'll move quickly, and then we'll give you some application points for today. First of all, I think this, I think this text really focuses on Esau. So we're not going to talk much about Jacob here. I think this is a, a, a passage that gives Esau his time in the spotlight so we can see his poor choice. We can see why he's accountable to God. Okay, so we'll talk more about Jacob as his story unfolds. But what we see here, because um, Hebrews chapter 12 calls Esau an unholy man. So we're going to refer to him as an unholy person. And we're going to talk about what an unholy person looks like today as well. So number one, the unholy person lives a life of worldly freedom that is pleasing to the flesh. I think this is how we see Esau, a man who is living free and seeking to please his flesh. Let's talk briefly about who Esau was. What are, again, this is a familiar story. Um, what I love about studying through Genesis as an adult is I feel like I was exposed to all of these stories as a kid, but I was told the story without really being taught the meaning of the story. So familiar story to us, but let's talk about why this story is here for us, especially as adults. Okay. Great kid story. What does it mean for us as adults? What do we think of thinking back to Sunday school and, and all the other classes we had as kids? How would we describe Esau? What do, what do we know about Esau? What is the description given to us? He's a hunter. He's hairy. He's red. He loves the outdoors. The Bible even talks about um, in Genesis 20, 27, 27, that he had a unique smell because he was outdoors all the time. In fact, Jacob had to try to acquire that smell to even pass himself off as Esau. He's a man's man when you read this, when you read this account. And I don't know, for those of you that follow some of Christian culture outside of this area and, and read books and blogs, and there's this, this mentality that's been kind of coming out of Christian culture that biblical manhood means being outdoors and being free and embracing adventure and um, drinking alcohol at the pub and talking about theology and getting a tattoo. And, and these are things what it means to be a man, to, to get guys together and watch UFC fights. And, and this is what it means to be a biblical man. And yet when I see those type of things in Scripture applied to men in Scripture, it's never a good thing. There's only two people that hunt in Scripture that we're told about, Nimrod and Esau, and neither one of them are good guys, right? One of them builds Babel, the city of Babel, and probably helped contribute to the building of the Tower of Babel. And then Esau is a man who's considered unholy. So we have this picture of Esau as being this manly man that enjoys a lot of things that are seemingly being promoted in Christian culture today when it comes to biblical manhood. And it's not the case, it's not the case. It's, it's a guy who, who is so free, who seems to be so involved with his hobbies that he's become irresponsible. I put in my notes here, a man who became irresponsible with his hobbies despite his birthright because he isn't concerned with embracing responsibility. Right? Birthright meant you're going to get two times of all of dad's stuff, but you've got to be the leader of the family. You've got to provide for the family. You've got to take care of the family. 
Esau's out hunting all the time, right? He's a great hunter, which for some of us would be perceived as, hey, that's really cool. Like, I want to be like Esau. Here's the problem, though. Abraham is described as a man who had all these animals, right? He's got all this livestock. And Abraham passes it down to Isaac. And so Isaac inherits it, right? The implication here is that while Esau is a great hunter, he doesn't need to be hunting, right? He's already got a stockpile of animals to eat if they want to eat meat, right? Meat's available. You're allowed to eat meat as a a follower of God here. But you don't need to go spend time hunting it and spending time away from your family. You don't have time to be leaving your family that you're supposed to be taken care of, that you're supposed to be starting to lead spiritually because you're the the one that's going to get the birthright because that seems to be how they're functioning. God said something different, but Isaac seems to be playing this out as though Esau's the guy. Esau keeps running off and, and spending time in the woods. Now, Jacob is described how by a lot of us. How do we remember Jacob being described as kids? A mama's boy, right? Like, as a boy, you're sitting in Sunday school and you're hearing this and you're like, I'm going to be like Esau. Like, I don't want to be known as a mama's boy because everything I was told as a kid is that Jacob stayed in the kitchen and he cooked with mom and he washed the dishes and, and he's a weak guy. And Esau was outside with his dad all the time and they were on fishing trips and hunting trips. And as a boy, you're like, I'm supposed to be Jacob, but I don't want to be <laughs> like this sounds like an awful situation. And this sounds like a better situation. And I think it's a misconstruing of who Jacob is in the passage because he's described, looking back at the text, I think he's described differently than how we remember him in Sunday school. It says back in Genesis chapter 25, Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. You do a little bit of study in the Hebrew, and I think what's really being pointed here is that he's a strong shepherd that's embraced maturity and responsibility, right? You know who else dwelt in tents? His granddad, Abraham. Remember when Abraham picked up the sword and went and killed a whole army that was wiping everybody out? Abraham wasn't a mama's boy, right? He wasn't stuck in the kitchen and, 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 and doing what we perceive to be weak things. That's, that's not the picture here. Now, Jacob may have been right along with his mom cooking in the kitchen and washing the dishes. I don't know. But I don't think the picture needs to be that one was strong and one was weak and and one was awesome and one wasn't. Jacob was a guy, I think, who had embraced responsibility and was probably functioning like a guy who was going to inherit everything and take control of the family. I think he's tending to the animals. I think he was very skilled with the animals in a different way than Esau. I think he's a quiet man. He's a mature man. He's not driven by impulse. We're also going to find that he's a very good schemer. He's smart. But the unholy person, what we see from Esau, is he's a man who lives with worldly freedom that is pleasing to the flesh. Secondly, the unholy person acts on impulse for the gratification of natural appetites. A few things we see here about Esau. First of all, he is a victim of his appetite for natural pleasure. He is a victim of his appetite for natural pleasure. Things are valued based on how they appeal to his senses, right? When he comes before Jacob, he comes back from a hunt and he's starving according to him. He's hungry, right? And, 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 and to, to really understand, that there, there's, there, there's not a situation here, I believe, where Esau is really on the verge of death, right? My kids tell me that they're starving. 
we talk about starving from the time we ate breakfast to the time we're supposed to eat lunch, right? None of us are starving when we get done here uh, gathering and we go to lunch. Now, we're hungry, like we're ready to eat, but none of us are on the verge of death like Esau portrays himself here, right? But his whole mindset, things that are valuable are things that can serve me right now. And the, the deception steps in, not that Jacob's really being all that deceptive, the deception that sets in in his mind is that the birthright has no value for me right now. In fact, if I die right now, it's not going to have any value at all. So things are valuable if they serve his immediate needs right now. Okay? That's, that's the mindset that Esau's operating under. He's a victim of his appetite. He wants natural pleasure. Things are only valuable to him if they appeal to his current senses. Secondly, he devalues the important things that are delayed and exchanges them for immediate satisfaction. He devalues the important things that are delayed and exchanges them for immediate satisfaction. He lives for the moment, no matter the cost. Esau is a man, an unholy person who lacks foresight. His basic idea here is if it can't help me, serve me, or satisfy me right now, it's not valuable. This is the picture that he gives us when he comes back from this hunt. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field. He's exhausted. Esau says to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau says, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. I can't help but take this story and and, and tie it into uh, the, the topic of sexual purity because one, the author of Hebrews allows this to flow right out of the fact that he says that we shouldn't be sexually immoral people. And then he says, don't be like Esau, a guy who sells his birthright. So as I'm studying this, I can't help, and, I, and I'm so, I feel like I'm so ultra-sensitive to this topic right now because, one, um, I've got boys that are, that are under my care, and obviously they are young and hopefully years away from having to really delve in this conversation with me. But as a middle school principal who deals with eighth graders in the springtime as they are really maturing at this point, It's becoming a topic of conversation. Guys are in my office constantly where I'm having to address sexual purity issues, conversations they're having, uh, actions that they're starting to delve into. Um, And so this 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 story really resonated with me because of some of the things that I'm thinking through right now from a sexual purity standpoint. And if we're tying it to that in the same way that the author of Hebrews does, the choice for sexual impurity, things like pornography, it's a choice against other things that are far more valuable, but maybe aren't readily available right now. So if I've got a middle school kid who's talking to me about temptations and struggles, the temptation is to satisfy right now. And when you try to talk to an eighth grader about the fact that one day he's going to want to get married to a woman that's going to want to uh, be cherished and loved, the eighth grader's thinking, man, that's a long way away, right? Like, You're telling me not to do something right now for something that's going to happen maybe 10, 12, 15 years down the road. Esau says, this is not valuable to me right now. This birthright that I'm supposed to get years from now, not valuable. What is valuable is that pot of stew that you have. So I will exchange for that because I need something right now. 
And that's the picture that we have with, with this idea of sexual immorality. It's this temptation to satisfy now versus any type of future gift that God wants to give. Esau is a man, an unholy person driven by impulse for the gratification of natural appetites. He's more concerned with how he felt than trusting in what he had. He's got all these promises from God and they should have superseded his feelings. All right. Esau is the great hunter, but he falls prey to the better hunter. What we see here is a man who went out to hunt animals and he comes back and he falls into a trap that his brother lays for him. So the guy who's not supposed to be a good hunter ultimately is the one who catches his brother. Esau's approach to this scene is similar to an animal being hunted. Esau comes back and he's driven by his natural desires. His appetite is clouding his view of the danger. Right? This, is what an, this is how a hunter lives. Right? A hunter is supposed to trick the animal into thinking that his appetite, his appetite should abandon any cause for concern. So whether you're fishing, whether you're hunting game, the goal is to make the individual think that it's a safe environment where you can satisfy your appetites. And then, boom, the hunter seizes control. That's exactly what Jacob does here. Jacob gives this scenario where Esau comes back hungry. His appetite clouds his view of the danger. I think I heard one of the groups talking. um, I put in my notes, Jacob seems to have been ready for this scene. Jacob either has observed this behavior before that Esau sometimes comes back and and isn't thinking straight when he doesn't kill something and he doesn't have food. Or he may have already detected that Esau didn't care much about the birthright. Right? They may have had conversations before. And Esau may have already been devaluing this in conversations with Jacob. So Jacob's just kind of waiting his turn, waiting his time. I know Esau doesn't care much for this. I'm going to wait until he's not thinking straight and I'm going to seize control of this birthright. And he lays this trap, I think, for him. Esau shows up and, and the Hebrew language says that basically he shows up and says, give me some of that red stuff. It, it's not that he even is able to even determine what's happening here. Like it's very caveman-like with the language. It's me hungry, me need food, give me some of that red stuff. Like he's so driven by his, his desires here that he's not thinking straight. And Jacob says, hmm, this is a great opportunity for me. This guy wants something so bad, he's not thinking straight. Yeah, I'll give you some. Yeah, I'll give you some. You just give me your birthright. He seizes control of this because Esau is completely abandoned to his impulses. His actions prefigure what his ancestors would become. It's kind of just thrown here in the text, and it doesn't make a lot of sense unless you know some of the meaning of the Hebrew. It says, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. That word there sounds very much like the word red. And so he becomes known as red, not because necessarily his skin color, but because of the fact that he sold everything for some red stuff. And his descendants become known as the red people. Because their inheritance is tied to the fact that their forefather abandoned everything for a pot of stew. And they become known as these type of people that are driven by their impulses without foresight. Jacob exploits Esau's condition to get what he wants. Going back to that idea of boasting. These are childish responses by both of these boys. right. One over-exaggerates his physical condition. I am so hungry, I'm going to die if I don't eat something right now. Right? Completely childish. 
you're not going to die. You probably ate something that morning before you went hunting. You could probably go many more days without eating. But he's, 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 he's portraying this idea that he's so famished. And then Jacob responds very childlike by basically just ripping his brother off. Right? And I see AJ do this all the time with Abram. Uh, he, he swaps things with Abram. And, and it's the worst trade possible. But he seizes control of the situation because he's more developed than Abram right now. Um, that's what Jacob seems to do here. He takes advantage that he is thinking straight brothers, not right. You'd love to see Jacob, uh, demonstrate hospitality here, right? Lot did it. Abraham did it. You'd love for him to say, brother, come and eat. I've got more than I can eat myself. Let me feed you. I think if there was any inclination that he was at the point of death, that's the response you would have seen from Jacob. Instead, he says, you want this bad enough? Then you give me what I want. You want what I have, then I want what you have. And there's this exchange here, but it's exploitation by Jacob. He takes advantage of the situation. And we have Esau's failure is reminiscent of the first sin and every sin after. You can't help but kind of look back and think about the exchange between Adam and Eve and Satan and the the exchange that happens here. Um, You have an individual who's not thinking straight. Uh, Esau's tired and hungry. Um, And he's driven to action by his senses, right? Similar to what you see in the Garden of Eden. Satan uh, creates this environment and he draws attention to the fact that the food looks good. It's great to the eyes. It's going to taste good. And so Eve is drawn into the environment by her senses. Esau is drawn into the environment. And some commentators even speculate that had this been the lentils that are being talked about, that the reddish color would have been cooked out. And that Jacob even doctors up the soup a little bit beyond what he normally would have done to make it all the more visually appealing to a hungry brother that shows up on the scene. So you've got a man who's being driven by his senses. He's enticed by this scenario because of what he wants. And then you see interaction play out, right? Eve wants the fruit. Well, how do I take the fruit? Satan says, you've got to believe that what I'm saying is better than what God's saying to you, right? Believe me, you won't die. Take of this fruit, disregard what God has said, and eat of the fruit. Jacob's kind of playing the role of Satan a little bit here. He's saying, look, you want this? This is good for you. This will feed you. I've prepared it. Give me. Disregard what God has given to you. Give that back to me. Give that back to me. So you see this this playing out kind of similar to what we see in the Garden of Eden. Esau disregards God in order to get what he wants. He disconnects the spiritual and sees no use for it. He chooses with a misunderstanding of death, right? Eve, Eve says, if I eat of this, I won't die. Esau says, if I don't eat of this, I'm going to die. So they're both operating with a misunderstanding of death when both of them give in to the temptation of food. The unholy person acts on impulse for the gratification of natural appetites. And then number three, the unholy person has no regard for the things of God. Here's what's crazy about how this story ends in chapter 25. It says that Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. It's like over before it really starts, right? Like this, this huge transaction. I'm going to forfeit all of my all of my blessing, I'm going to forfeit all of my rights to lead our family. I'm going to forfeit my right as the chosen son for a pot of stew. And then as quickly as he came on the scene, it says he ate and he drank. He got up and he left. 
Esau despised his spiritual privileges. It's not that he despised it after the fact, it's that he despised it before, that he had no regard for the things that God had promised. He treated them as worthless in that moment because he, had, he hadn't truly seen their value previously. And then he seems oblivious to the consequences. He seems unfazed by his sacrifice as he walks away satisfied. I couldn't help as I was reading this thinking about Samson when uh, the, the text talks about Samson um, and he's involved in this relationship with Delilah and she cuts his hair and it says that he leaves that scene and he doesn't realize that the Holy Spirit has left him. He doesn't realize it. He, he, he's forgotten. He, he, he's disregarded it. Most likely because he had been disregarding it for a while now. And hadn't really been relying on the Holy Spirit's power. And but it says the Spirit left him. It was gone. And he didn't even know it. It's almost as though Esau eats and drinks and forfeits the birthright and walks away and says, man, that was worth it. Like the birthright wasn't doing me anything before and it's not doing me anything right now. And, and I'm not even concerned about the fact that I've lost it. You don't see him get concerned about it again until a couple chapters later when he's realized that he doesn't get it and Jacob actually has it now. But he just completely walks away and doesn't value what he has sacrificed. He ate and drank and the moment was forever gone. It's a short story. It's put here, I think, for a specific purpose for us to see Esau's accountability, Right? God chose Jacob. He's going to work through Jacob. He's going to give grace to Jacob. Not because Jacob's this upstanding young man. God's going to hold Esau accountable, not because he didn't choose him, but because of Esau's choices, right? Esau is held accountable. Hebrews chapter 12 paints this picture that he's the one that forfeited his blessing. He's the one that's the unholy person. He's the one that uh, bore the consequences of his decisions and the, the, the encouragement is that we should not be like Esau. So I'm going to give you four different ways as we close here for us not to be like Esau, as Hebrews 12 tells us not to be. First of all, we must not allow the things we enjoy to pull us away from the things we are called to. Right? We must not allow the things we enjoy to pull us away from the things we are called to. This is my little blurb for all of us that love the outdoors and love the hobbies that God is given to us that involve creation, right? We've got plenty of guys in here uh, and you are led by a pastor who loves to be outdoors, who loves to fish, who loves to hunt, who loves to, to enjoy God's creation. In no way do I think that this passage keeps us from doing those things. But I think the warning here is that we should never allow the things that we enjoy to pull us away from the responsibilities that we are called to. The moment that our hobbies start to draw us away from our families and to draw our families away from a spiritual connection with the church, then we've got a problem, right? It's not uncommon for us to, to see people abandoning the church for their weekend hobbies, right? And, and I'm not talking about just Sunday attendance. I'm talking about being joined to a local church and it being central to your family's calendar and your schedule and the love that you have for each other. Yes, enjoying the hobbies, bringing your church family along to enjoy those hobbies with you. But I think it's important that we don't allow the things we enjoy to pull us away from the things we're called to, right? We get to enjoy God's creation for eternity when Jesus comes back and we're on the new heavens and the new earth. We're called to something right now, and that's to win people to Christ and to build his kingdom. 
And so we, so, so lest we be guilty of, of allowing the things that we enjoy to supersede that, let's be careful that we don't allow it to pull us away from the things that we're called to. Secondly, we must be careful as some mistakes can ultimately define us. Right? I, I think this is a, a decision that Esau makes, and it has lifetime ramifications for him. This is one of the things I've been talking about with some of the eighth grade boys, and, and they're not seeking me out. I'm pulling them into my office, and I say, look, I'm hearing things that I don't like, and I need you to understand if the things that I'm hearing are true, they need to stop before I find out they're true. I, I was having this conversation on Thursday, and I said, here's what you got to understand. If you are going down this path, these are decisions that will go with you for the rest of your life. I said, because you won't be here at Trinity because you'll be immediately expelled for it. There's going to be legal consequences potentially. There's a whole host of things that are going to flow from this if you go down this path. And you go down this, this idea of freedom and, and self-gratification and, and, and trying to enjoy the appetites that, that are, that are uh, a craving for you right now. You go down this path of sexual impurity, it's going to have big-time consequences. Consequences that could potentially define you for a long period of time. We must be careful as some mistakes can ultimately define us if we're not careful. This is what Esau is, right? When we think of Esau, we think about him selling his birthright. Hebrews defines him that way. It's something that he never really recovers from. And his people group, the Edomites, never seem to really recover from it. They, they, they go down this path of, of sin and, and holiness, and we're told to not be like them. Number three, we must be careful not to disconnect the spiritual aspect from our lives when we need it the most. And what's so concerning about this is that Esau, in the moment when he's the weakest, he says, you know what? The spiritual stuff that my dad's been telling me and the things that I've heard from granddad and, and all these things, those things don't have value right now. I need food. I need, I need to be fed, right? A God who promises to take care of our needs, a God who promises to carry us through trials, a God who promises to supply everything for our contentment. When he needs something, the very moment that he needs to rely on God's promises, he says, you know what? Those things don't have any value, right? Like the Sunday school stories, the, the sermons, the books, all that stuff that I've heard doesn't have value because right now I'm in the midst of this and this is what's important. This is what has value. We must be careful not to disconnect the spiritual aspect from our lives when we need it the most. Esau's guilty of that. And then number four, we must avoid surrendering those things of lasting spiritual value for the satisfaction of our physical appetites. We must avoid surrendering those things of lasting spiritual value for the satisfaction of our physical appetites. These are ways that we can avoid being like Esau. I want to close by reading something that I wrote down um, to share with AJ and Abram one day. Um, but it also serves as a good encouragement or a good reminder for me. Um, and then an encouragement that I want to share in regards to um, sexual immorality and sexual purity. Again, going back to what Hebrews chapter 12 says, uh, the encouragement that's there for us. And one of the conversations that we have as men in our church is, how do we talk about sexual purity with our, with our boys specifically as dads? We've been talking about this. And when do we introduce them to the importance of sexual purity? And um, those things we're still kind of working through. Um, I know I talked with several, several of our men in our church about how to handle this. We talked about it recently in one of our man-up breakfasts. But back in Hebrews chapter 12, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. 
that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. We're going to see Esau is an immoral guy sexually as well because he starts taking women that are not godly. He starts taking multiple women that are not godly to bring into his family. So he's a sexually immoral guy as well as a guy who sells his birthright. Um, this is what I wrote, and I'm going to keep it uh, to, to use as a, as a point of conversation with AJ and Abram as they continue to grow and, um, and understand their role as a man in, in pursuing a relationship with a woman. In studying Esau this morning, it's clear Esau falls prey to his feelings and emotions in the story. He is tired and his body is craving fulfillment. He has convinced himself that if he doesn't satisfy, satisfy his body right then and there, he cannot go on. When Jacob mentions the birthright, the spiritual heritage of Esau, he responds by saying he has no use for it at that moment. To him, this is a physical issue that the spiritual cannot speak to. Rather than seeing the promises of God to provide for physical needs, he dismisses everything he knows in that moment and focuses only on the immediate, that his body is telling him he needs something right now. I have this great fear that one day one of my sons is going to abandon everything that he's been taught for an immediate response to a situation. And I want to do everything I can to combat that, right? Like, I don't want to be in a situation where we're talking about my son making a poor choice in a, in a spur-of-a-moment decision and it having big-time consequences for him. Esau does that. He abandons everything that he knows. This isn't any different than the battle we are in for sexual purity. Our bodies tell us that we need something and sin sits in front of us much like Jacob with his lentils. It looks good, it smells good, and in the moment the spiritual things we have been relying on all of a sudden seem disconnected from what we think we need at that time. To give in to lust, to pornography, or to any sexual impurity is to say, what use do I have for God's promises right now if I don't find sexual fulfillment immediately? I can't physically go on. The truth of the matter is that Esau had probably already eaten something that day. Physically, he could have gone on for many days, and yet he convinced himself otherwise. Jacob took advantage of Esau's weakened condition as Satan seeks to do with us. Hebrews 12 says, don't be Esau. The appeal I see in this passage is that when our bodies lie to us from the pits of hell and tell us that the fulfillment of sex is the only way to go on, we picture ourselves as Adam standing before the tree. We picture ourselves as Esau standing before that pot. And in that moment, we choose whether the fading moment of physical pleasure is worth forfeiting the lasting eternal joy of Christ. Remind yourself of things you potentially forfeit if you give in today the blessing of loving a real woman, the privilege of serving within the church, those things that possess real value that can be forfeited for a moment of pleasure. Esau's choice defined the rest of his life. I don't want to be defined by a similar mistake, and I don't want my sons to be either. Fight hard today and fight hard every day. Esau makes a split-second decision. He thinks, man, this is the only answer right now. i got to abandon something that's so valuable for something that I need right now, and he forfeits it. And it defines the rest of his life. He never really gets over it. And he, and he goes down this path of sin and, and unholiness. And, and he leads his, his, his ancestors down that path as well. I think the story is here for us to see Esau's responsibility. I think we can learn from it. We can learn from it that we aren't to be driven by our appetites and, and our bodies and our senses. That instead we're to be driven by God's promises we were to value those promises, cherish those promises, especially in moments when it feels like that they're far off, that we need to recognize that anything that sin can give us right now pales in comparison to what we have offered to us in the future. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you and thank you for your word.
God, I'm thankful that you record the stories that you do, and you've given them to us for specific reasons. And Father, we are thankful for our salvation. We are thankful that you have saved us in such a way that we cannot boast. God, we're thankful for the reminders in Romans 9 that you've always been choosing to bestow your grace upon people for reasons we don't understand. So anything that we enjoy that is good in our life right now is because you've chosen to give it to us and not because we've earned it. And God, we're thankful also that you are a God who, in the midst of being in control of everything, you have not created individuals who are not accountable. And so, God, we're thankful that we can be reminded that we are accountable for the decisions that we make. And, God, we, we, uh, we see the tragedy of the story of Esau, a man who, who gave in to the things that he loved and, and allowed it to pull him away from his responsibilities of being a family man and God, we see him being driven by impulses and desires and appetites that were uh, natural, but were being abused. And God, we see him in the, in the midst of a, of, a, of a moment devaluing the thing that was so important, his spiritual heritage, and forfeiting that for a passing pleasure. And God, I pray that we will see the spiritual connection that flows from Hebrews chapter 12, that we are called to be men and women that persevere in the faith, that don't fail to obtain your grace, that we're not sexually immoral, that we're not individuals who throw away everything we've been taught for a passing pleasure. God, I pray that we would be faithful to you. And God, I pray that the reason we're faithful to you would be that we see how precious your promises are. And we understand the inheritance that we have to come in the future. God, whether any of us have an inheritance coming here on this earth because of our, our parents, you have assured us that as spiritual children of you, we have a great and mighty inheritance that's being preserved for us in heaven to be revealed on that last day. God, help us not to be individuals that forfeit that inheritance by the sinful choices that we can make right now. God, help us to walk in your spirit and not in our flesh. Help us to yield to you and not to the old man. God, help us to be the new creatures that you've called us to be. Pray that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit to live changed lives as we seek to influence this area for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.